everyone welcome to this first part of four on lewis mumford's most well-known text techniques and civilization um this will be four parts um each part is covering 100 pages roughly um but each part will go into specific chapters but the and i will go through the names of the chapters but uh, the ideas of the text uh, are fairly straightforward uh very inviting very intriguing uh, very articulate mumford is a very articulate writer but they all they all flow fairly seamlessly so there's no no real reason to split this up completely thematically they all flow into one another and build this foundation um so there'll be four of these and um parts one and two will be free and then parts three and four will be for patrons only um but uh let's jump in so I'm using uh, the edition that you see on the screen. I mean, the editions don't really, uh, as far as I understand, haven't really changed all that much at all. Um, so, yeah, it's just Techniques and Civilization by Lewis Mumford. So this was originally, this was published in 1934. Uh, for those that don't know, Mumford uh, was a philosopher, but he was, in a certain sense, you know, he he's a philosopher and he's a historian of technology, but his, his philosophy is completely... Um, you know, reliant and has it as its foundation a very thorough knowledge of of history. He's an extremely uh, encyclopedic thinker and philosopher, and it makes for great reading. He moves very fast as a writer, and he very very quickly goes through very practical ideas. Um, so, really, you know, Mumford and this text is one of the first to take technology seriously in terms of its effects on history. Uh, you know, not as this thing which automatically just evolved from nowhere and is just part of the general history, right? It's like, oh, we don't need to think about that as something which is a catalyst for other things or has an effect on history. But it's but Mumford is one of the first to theorize that technology itself, uh, the, you know, the, the machinization, the machine in abstract machining or machinization or the machine mind, you know, what it is to be a machine and act as a machine and the effects of the machine um, have these reciprocal effects on everything else. And it's not just an afterthought which springs up sort of after history but has an effect on it itself. And one of the beautiful things about Mumford, other than the fact he's also a historian of technology, is that he has extensive personal experience with technology. You know, he, he's done smithing, he's done woodworking, he's done cabinet making, he spent a lot of time in laboratories. Um, and, you know, he has a extensive literary output, uh, much of which is based around city planning, around town planning, around these very, very practical aspects of technology. So unlike someone such as maybe Heidegger in the question concerning technology, who's going off into, you know, often far more abstract routes, um, Mumford is really, really staying with uh, the practical applications of technology and always keeping that abstraction which he understands as technology or more often understands as just the machine um, uh, you know always connected to the practical application which he has experience with so um, the book begins with so really, these are the key points which I've outlined uh, for those watching. But really, this is meant to be just an audio lecture, but this is just for YouTube. So you have something to watch. Um, the book begins with, and these will come up much later, but the book begins with objectives. 
the objectives of the book, basically. Uh, it's a fairly short section. Um, but the objectives begin with the fact that Mumford, as I said, it might seem completely uh, not, not all that surprising now, but Mumford's beginning with this theorization that machines have changed Western civilization and therein machines have this effect on history itself. And there is a reciprocal uh, relationship between history and the evolution of technology, evolution of societies and technology's effect, right? It's not just this thing that we control and we're like, okay, we need that bit of technology now in relation to history. It has its own effect on history. The questions, of course, which for Mumford, which are arising from this acknowledgement are, well, if we begin to think in values, so he actually later on splits things into um, life values and machine values or, or something along those lines. You replace machine values with maybe material values or things like that. So a, a replacement in a certain sense of you can you can imagine what is thought of as life values so mumford isn't in this book at least isn't someone who's you know delving into the abstractions of the language that he's using in the sense of well what do we mean by life okay so life values um those qualitative values that you might have in a familial realm or something like that um what values are arising when the machine is understood what's happening when the machine has this um clear entry into history as something which is a determinant of history as well as uh, you know a, a part of it alongside this he's also sort of seeking to answer the question well, what does the machine age signify and in that he very briefly sort of touches on the idea of what exactly a machine is but he really then the, the time the points where Mumford is focusing on abstractions is the point when he is uh, looking into that term machine the idea of a machine because for him uh, it really ends up being and is more to do with the machine mind so you have machines but the point of questioning machines is to say well what is it to to machine okay so you can easily just have a machine but the question of that is is well when the machine i've said machine quite a lot now when the machine is within society within a culture within history what is the abstract process which is being undertaken by a machine or some machines? And what does that begin to signify in the way that we think about things? That might seem very, very abstract. But for Mumford, what he actually says is, you know, you have these thinkers such as Nietzsche says the will to power or Schopenhauer is um, the will, uh, the, the will to life, the will to live. I might have got that wrong. Um, but anyway, the will to the classic will to. Mumford has the will to order. Uh, so he says from the machine age comes the will to order, which is in relation to the common relationship throughout much of the history of philosophy of a move from a society or a culture of quality to one of quantity, of ordering, of dividing, of putting into place. And he's then asking well, what was actually already in place to allow the machine age to take place? And this is clearly answered later on. But his point with that is, is actually, well, if you have this machine age, he's saying that for machines in that practical sense to begin to divide, to begin to quantify, to begin to select and put into certain orders, in a very uh, Eric Vogelin sense, there has to be the cultural foundation for a social understanding of what that even means. So what is the foundation, the will to order, which has already been put in place? And where has that come from to allow the machine age and the machinizations to take place? Okay. Okay. 
Um, the 18th century's Industrial Revolution, basically in relation to this foundation, Mumford is then saying the processes, this foundation, the ideas which actually allow these things to flourish in that practical sense, they began roughly in the 10th century. And for him, he then begins to split this, split this into uh, three historical waves. So the first wave was, was around 1000 AD, moving into the second wave with the Middle Ages through to the Industrial Revolution. And the, the third wave was just coming in in 1934. And I guess in a certain sense, we probably haven't really removed ourselves from that, that age because it's not necessarily to do with the practical applications. You might say, well, we've got computers now. It's a different type of machine. But the, it's more just an acceleration of that certain mindset of, uh, we could say, hyper-quantification of reality. So what happens from this and one of the clear objectives which Mumford is then trying to articulate and bring out with this philosophy of history is that the machine becomes for itself okay it is mechanization for the sake of more mechanization we see this actually in Jack Lull who I've done talks on before in presence in the modern world where Lull would say um you know, you have means and ends, whereas machines and machine minds are means towards, uh, should be means towards an end. What happens when you become, um, uh, get embroiled within the cult of the machine is that you just end up machinizing for the sake of machinizing. So it's means for the sake of means for the sake of means. Okay. Um, now, one of the interesting things that Mumford puts forward with respect to this is that techniques the machine mind this this abstract machinization which we see as abstract and we believe to be abstract which i'll get to in a bit this isn't independent uh this might all seem that might seem strange for him to say that in the objectives okay so the point being is that the thing we're talking about when we think about machines we even even in mumford's day here in the 1930s we we rarely actually ask well you know one, how can we use these machines for for a fuller or more accomplished use? But also we rarely ask, well, who made these? You know, what are they contingent on? What, uh, who developed these processes? Where does the mindset that allows us to understand these processes of the machine, which is, you know, counting, numerics, dividing, quantifying, uh, automation, production, efficiency, that mindset, that, that, Vogelian foundation had to be there in the first place for us for to, to allow us to understand not just what's literally happening on that very practical level of like accounting mechanism, but culturally why we want that and why that makes sense altogether. And so techniques aren't independent because they're entirely reliant on our valuation of the machination machinizations which are happening of the machine. So our valuations of the machine are what that sounds like a tautology, but our valuations of the machine are what gives the machine value. Therefore, this machine, abstract machine world or tech world of techniques isn't an abstract world. It is still dependent and when there is an interdependency between man and techniques or techniques and civilization. And so the wheel of history for Mumford in this philosophical sense was on in that reciprocal relationship. And so Mumford then says, as all these things are solidifying in this third wave of history, he says, we need a transvaluation of the machine. 
you know, and, and, and immediately, of course, when we think of the word transvaluation in philosophy, and Mumford, uh, we think of Nietzsche, the transvaluation of all values. So for Nietzsche, there's that transvaluation of all values. You know, Nietzsche would probably say that Mumford, Mumford's taking it back to a more uh, banal level with machines. But Mumford is, there is, there is clear elements of theology, uh, Christianity and faith and the death of God, which we'll actually get to in this talk, in this book. And so for Mumford, you know, he's on this very practical level saying, you know, very specific, practical, refined level, talking about the transvaluation of of the values that we've imposed upon machines from that uh, foundation, which allows us to understand or, or agree with the ma machines altogether or this machine abstract mind altogether. And he says we need a transvaluation of this because they aren't going away, they're not exactly useless, but the uses that they're being put to, you know, the, the ideas of that we'll get to of productivity, of efficiency, of clock time, standardization, these are ideas that we can, you know, we need a transvaluation of these eyes to find a balance and use, uh, use the machines for something, something higher. Okay. So that's the objectives and pretty, pretty big objectives, but ultimately the objectives are, 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 are a connection of, of, of Mumford's sort of history in a way of philosophy and history of technology and ultimately just the effects of technology on history and the effects of technology on Western civilization. And he begins with um, chapter one called Cultural Preparation. And so with cultural preparation, just those terms, we can basically think about um, a culture being Western culture, being prepared for something. So it's something we rarely think of. I mean, this is one of uh, Lewis Mumford's clear points is that machines don't just arise and we're ready for them, right? There has to be um, a cultural, uh, say philosophical, maybe even ideological or whatever, one, whatever you want to say about it. There has to be this certain cultural foundation in place for us to be able to even understand the language of what these machines are doing, why it's good, bad, etc., etc. So this chapter one is basically saying in what sense did we mentally, culturally, socially, maybe even religious, religiously, faithfully, spiritually prepare ourselves, give ourselves presumptions, alter the way we think to be able to understand this, um, this entry of the machines over thousands of years. And the way Mumford opens this up is he, he he opens this up with something that that I've already stated, and he begins from the end result and works in a way works backwards. Well, he, he so he throws in this end result, which is a peculiar thing of our tendency to attribute the complexities and habits of any machine to the machine itself, okay, um, as opposed to understanding it as our creation. So once machines are developed, we under we we immediately understand the 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 attributes, the complexities, the, the the functions, the mechanisms, the habits, the things, and the processes the machines do. Be it my microphone, be it the computer screens, be it a toaster. They then just once they're built and placed and plugged in and switched on, these functions basically just exist in this abstract machine world, which we seemingly just no longer have a connection to, and they just do the thing. It's like, oh, that's the machine, and it's machining, and that's its whole, whole other thing. Mumford is emphasizing this point at the start that for some reason we, we immediately create this schism um, where we, we, 
we no longer understand that these machines have been created, that these are uh, human creations, that these processes that we've you know, to take a very simple example, something something such as a toaster, it's not just some abstract process which just happens to be there. The thought and contingency of the human process that bread needs to be toasted is there. And so that, that automated process is something that we've created and has been enveloped by a culture which was which was already there for us to be able to actually understand, uh, I guess you could say, the epistemological need for the machines that they, we've been given. But as soon as they are machined and placed in front of us as these abstract machines, we we have the schism of of thought where we we just attribute everything to the machines themselves. And of course, so Munford Munford spends not too much time really just making it clear that that's that's how we think of machines There's basically the beginning is that of this cultural preparation is there is this general splitting there is the mach- the abstract machine world where machining takes place by machines and there is the human world where humans are and we do human things uh, and there isn't really this interplay uh, there isn't this understanding of creation uh, there isn't really this understanding of control in a certain sense and of course, Mumford, Mumford is quick, probably like many other um, historians of technology before him, to say that machines have been around for uh, for him around three thousand years. So, he, um, and they're not a new phenomena. But he does, of course, differentiate because some people might be going, "Well, what about an axe?" And he says, "You know, there's clearly a difference between tools and machines." And the general difference for Mumford, if I was to just hone it down, machines differ from tools because their capacity is to automate processes. So machines generally are very, very, it's an extremely specific process. So if you, Mumford, Mumford later on gives the example of a knife. So if you take a knife, okay, there is a, there is a you could say there is a clear objective that you're meant or, or use for a knife, right? You're meant, you're meant to cut things. But as everyone knows, when you almost like, almost like in Kubrick's, the start of Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey with the monkey with, the bone, you know, humans, when they grab a tool, we, we become inventful with them. You can use a knife to pry open a window, to spread butter, to poke a hole in something, to cut a, cut a hole in something, to do a thousand and one other things. Machines, on the other hand, are for, for Mumford, he likens them to organs. They are specific process-based machines with a highly specialized, focused um, end. Okay, so machines in this sense have been around for 3,000 years um, with these very, very, very specialized th- uh, things that they do. And that, you know, and they, they're not being, they're not able to be broken outside of that. Generally speaking, in this process, uh, this process based sense of machines, they also convert energy, they work, they create an order, they regulate, they standardize. Okay. And what happens uh, from this, from this specialization, is really, you, I don't want to say there's a history of Fordism and Mumford, uh, you know, it's not there at that point, but this specialization moves forward from history and you see uh, from, from, from Mumford, there is a clear, also a clear history of what we could maybe say of, of some people would disagree with this, but Mum, this is the way Mumford would see it. I would say almost an entropy of non-specialization. 
So there is um, a neg entropy of specialization, which makes it sound stupidly complicated. All I'm trying to say there is, is there is a growth of specialization, but I want to, I don't want to say a growth of specialization because for Mumford, that's a, that's a negative. So there is a, there is a, there is an entropy of non-specialization. Okay. People are, people are losing skills in this sense that they, they, in their reliance on machines, not only are skills lost, but someone's, someone's work may be reliant on two or three machines and then their life becomes highly specialized in that later Fordist sense of, you know, the, 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 um, the mechanical factory, factory floor. Um, so in this, in this way, the move towards machines um, for Mumford is a move towards impersonality. So you specialize, machines standardize, they automate processes. This ends up sort of, you know, cutting off the rough edges of things and everyone gets the same thing. Everyone does the same process and it removes the personality of things. And that's sort of what's going to happen from this cultural preparation. Uh, this is what machines are going to be doing. This is what the cultural preparation has led to. This is what the cultural preparation has allowed us and led us to understand as somewhat normal. And then he begins to say, well, okay, let's really undo, or not undo, let's really unpick exactly where this cultural preparation uh, this cultural preparation has been bolstered. You know, where, what, has, what has actually built this? Um, and oddly, Mumford goes back to the routine of the monastery, to the Benedictines, in fact. He says the routine of the Benedictine monastery was the birthplace of the machine mind. And it's interesting, right? Because if you said the routine of the monastery was the birthplace of the machine, you would begin to think of these very specific plastical, uh, uh, practical or plastic machines. You might think, well, well, what does the routine of a Benedictine monastery have to do with my computer keyboard? Uh, and actually, for Mumford, it has absolutely everything to do with machines, but it, you know, this routine of the Benedictine monastery being the birthplace of the machine mind. So it's the birthplace of the mindset, which begins really a quantified, processed, regulated, standardized, ordered machine mind mindset, which allows us then to understand, oh, that's a machine. I understand why we have that. And it's because the Saint, uh, the rule of St. Benedict split the day into seven periods with the bell ringing seven times over 24 hours. And this was really, the, for, for the, at least for Mumford, I'm sure maybe scholars of clock time might see something different somewhere. But for Mumford, he says that this is where the machinic rhythm began. He says quite literally, the machinic rhythm began with the Benedictines. And basically what they end up doing is setting the pace for the quantitative worldview, for a, for a worldview of standardization and order and regulation and in this way um, the clock becomes the ultimate machine in relation to techniques it's the ultimate model of mechanism it leads to clockwork it leads to quantitative uh, clockworked time it leads to mechanical movement and temporality and process it leads to an understanding of quantifiable production and therefore productivity and efficiency once you have clock time you have one of the very uh, key elements of the machine mind um now this 
uh, earlier on, I spoke about the fact that one of the first things we do when we think about machines is we we have that split human machine, right? Machines in its own little world, human doing its own little thing as well. And it's almost like we meet with that world very, very, there isn't really an interplay where we're entwined within it. And the minutes, the minutes and hours of clock time, this idea of minutes and hours, okay, um, is another factor of disassociation, which led man away, um, f- f- led him away from this interplay of all things as as if these things were contingent on our creation and led him to a deeper understanding of that separate mathematic world. Um, and interestingly, you know, in the history of this, prior to this, days were understood as uneven. You know, we, we still say now, oh, today has been, today has been a long day or the, you know, the evenings are getting shorter or the evenings are getting longer. Or some of us may have quite literally experienced longer or shorter hours in a, in a maybe a subjective, what we consider a subjective sense because clock time's so objective. Prior to this, this sort of infiltration as Mumford sees it of clock time, um, days you know, in the context of the time, days quite literally were uneven. Okay, so shepherds measured from the time the ewes lambed, farmers uh, for sowing certain seeds or crops, you know, different times, different regularities with respect to other worlds in connection to birth, ritual, death, decay, spirituality. You had that personalization with a local context, global context, national context, etc. Clock time is you know going you could go back to kant and say look clock time is that is that gloss which you know immediately chop 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 right everything is now divided and so with the invention of the universal timepiece the clock the watch whatever uh you know we now have 24 hours in a day 60 minutes in an hour 60 seconds in a minute etc etc everything is neat and divided we now have with this the understanding of productivity, the understanding of process, the understanding of efficiency. Um, and we also, oddly, something that Mumford focuses on is, before this, of course, you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to say time is money. But now time is money. Okay, so now there is the understanding, well, if you can now understand what it is to be efficient with your now time, time, which has now been allotted and, and allotted and slotted and sliced and diced. And now you can see this person does X in one hour and this person Y does uh, Z in one hour and one does less and one does more. more. All of a sudden, the understanding that time is money um, enters into reality. And all of a sudden, you, you remove the personalization and this process of regulation and automation in relation to efficiency enters into things. So ultimately, for Mumford time regiments it's linear it standardizes and ultimately it encloses now of course this has all these very uh commonly attributed effects on man such as you now have lunchtime and you just begin to eat even if you're not hungry you no longer listen to your many people no longer listen to their body because well it's lunchtime and that is when we have lunch um and in this sense everything begun begins to enter into this notion of division and actually there's a brief brief notes for Mumford that the fact that this also happens in the spatial uh, space in space as well the spatial dimension it's also changed space two is changed um, and it has its connections with the numbers of seven and twelve in relation to the church and I believe this also has many connections to how cathedrals were built and how certain 
um, certain spatial arrangements were divided. Um, and also this then has an effect on painting. So you see this in a, a lot of uh, a sudden shift in Christian art with respect, with respect to spatial perspective where canvases become divided. So everything is in to do with this sort of division. It's to do with the control. But in this division, in this sort of numerical numbering and ordering and regulation and standardization of division and spacing, really what you're seeing is, is, is the foundation, at least at the very least, you're seeing the foundation of the machine mind, if not the machine mind itself. In the, in the sense that you can understand that, you have been infiltrated by the parasite of the machine, you, you know, I might say. Now, the big thing, in a way, for Mumford, and it's clear that this was probably an important discussion of the day, uh, is that he's very quick to take capitalism as something seriously, uh, as something serious. So, Mumford, I don't know Mumford's politics fully, and I think probably they're quite complex and fairly nuanced. There's clearly a socialist leaning, but I also think there's maybe some primitivist leanings in a certain sense um, and probably some traditional values which now certainly wouldn't fit in with socialism. But don't quote me on that one. Um, capitalism for Mumford in relation to this numeric division of time and space and more importantly time um, in its move from a barter economy to a money economy ultimately just um, now enters into the possibility of exchange ability. Things can be chopped and changed. Um, you now have time is money. So then now once you have that notion of split time in relation to productivity and how much something is being made, you have this possibility for wages, for labor and wages. Um, and you now have an ability for an exchange ability in relation to division, man's time and everything is split up. You know, to give the socialist view, man's labor and time is split up. Okay. From this, also from these monetary values in relation to capitalism, profit and loss are introduced. And what happens is when we look back to those original objective which Mumford, objectives which Mumford is trying to answer, money values overtake life values. But in the sense that money is time, what we can actually see is that time values overtake life values. But what does that really might mean is that the machine, the values of the machine, which have somehow arisen from some abstract space, which we have, we are contingent with, you know, we've allowed this to happen in some sense. And really, we'll see in a bit that this is in, in relation to power. What we're seeing is machine values overtake life values. Okay. Time is money. And ultimately, what's happening is people are beginning to realize in a money economy that money is power to what's happening when money values overtake life values in the sense that, you know, you have profit and loss, you have labor time, you have people's division basically cut up into productivity is that the the profit overtakes, which means money values overtake takes, but ultimately money is the source uh, and, and the means towards power. So power values overtake life values. Okay. So at this point, abstraction reigns. Okay. The object becomes X amount of money. Everything now enters into, enters into that temporal division of time is money in the monetary economy. Everything is now up for grabs. In the same sense as that very cliche saying as, you know, uh, anything you point a gun at is is a is a target you know once you enter into a monetary economy everything has a price which means everything is entered into this machinic um thinking 
this technics, this thinking of techniques, techniques overtake. Now, you know, many later thinkers of today, ones that I've spent a lot of time researching, would say would say different to this. But Mumford emphasizes that capitalism and techniques are distinguished. They are different, you know, they are different things. They are distinguished, but one conditions the other. And once again, there is an interplay, um, much like techniques and history, techniques and capitalism. So really, in a certain sense, I think he's probably in agreement with many later thinkers that the acceleration is the acceleration, sorry, <laughs> the acceleration of capitalism is conditioned by the acceleration of technology or techno-economic growth or techonomic growth. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, this interplay of conditioning each other begs uh, brings forth the question for Munford, you know, about, well, without the monetary incentivization, um, it's, it's unknown for him whether or not machines would have been developed so rapidly because the machine mind of machines itself which isn't abstract, but I've made it sound abstract there, in its connection with that idea of division and the monetary economy, you know, once again, it goes back to that Alulian sense of means for the sake of means. So it's almost like it's in the machine's interest. It's in the, it's in the machine mind interest to grow more machines, right? To, to, to develop more machines, to, but machines are more, you know, to be more productive, to be more efficient. It's always a certain sense of more machinization, which is also more money. So, there is that reciprocal relationship once again. And one, one interesting thing, which, which, you know, a symptom, which now Mumford um, brings in, is animism, okay? The disassociation of energy, of power, from the animistic, okay? So in the, the example he gives is, if you were to lift a heavy object, right? You have the understanding, you have the feeling, you have your arm, you have the muscles lifting the object. Now, if you were to employ a, a machine crane to do the same job, all of a sudden, this animist reality is completely removed. And there is, a, once again, a, a further disassociation from what actually is given in these things which are actually happening in terms of energy and power and it's a continual move away from this and there is a far bigger symptom of this in that the final disassociation which is really with uh, comes in fully with Rene Descartes and the philosophy of Descartes himself someone who absolutely loved machines uh, no surprise there is that for Descartes, who was was a de a deist, who believed that you know God just not rolls the dice, but he turns the hands of the clock, and he's the for for Descartes, God becomes the eternal clockmaker. Right, it's a deist outlook. They set the universe running, um, and in a sense, their responsibility, God's responsibility, is removed because the great machine is just whirring. And in a way, for Mumford as well, our responsibility is removed because the machine itself is machining and now we become sort of these machine puppets on a string we're just plugged into that supposed abstract thing because the whole history of machinization has been one in which we are continually removed from the fact of our contingency in the development and creation of machines and the fact of the matter is that they don't exist apart from us in some abstract machine world of their own creation. And that they also, the fact of the matter is that the cultural foundation, which is 
uh, there at the start is something that we ourselves have embroiled ourselves within, but also we ourselves have come about. This disassociation with the body, with God in the sense of grace, because now you have the deist uh, clockmaker, and this continual impersonalization for Mumford is further exacerbated because the church at this point, I guess for Mumford, there is this sort of public disgust regarding the body and its animalistic processes, right? And these are coming up to, these are coming up head to head with oddly the solidification of the enlightenment, right? Which you see um, in that third phase of history for Mumford, sorry, the second, the end of the second phase of history for Mumford with the industrial revolution and the beginning of the third phase, you know, it's almost like there, okay, there was a move. There was a move where you know, we, uh, during that first phase, we, we we would have a complete understanding of the animalistic. Like you move the rock with your arm, and then you move through to the idea that the the, the okay, the the moving with the arm isn't needed anymore. We have a crane to do that, and then the third phase, in a way, in cahoots with all these things that I've mentioned with Descartes and the church disgust of the body and the, the disassociation with the animalistic parts of ourselves. Is actually almost like a disgust. Like, why would we ever do that anymore when we've got a machine to do it? You know, we, we, we give that task over to the abstract order, okay? And what happens then is a, what, what many would then call a disenchantment. Um, magic becomes science. This is the point where magic becomes science because you've got, you're removed from that world of a personalized, subjective, um, private, um, often animalistic, uh, appreciation of things and magic becomes science in this way by way of a regimented analysis of the private into a publicly accessible format and this is what the machine mind does is it takes things finds a way to quantify them often by way of just cutting off everything that can't be quantified via usage of its language and says well that's ridiculous and then presents the other thing as public science. And we still see this today, of course. So regimenta this regimenta yeah, regimentation springs from this spatio-temporal division, the, which is the foundation which allows the machine mind to thrive. And basically what we then have now as our foundation from all these things is we are... We believe we're in control of some abstract realm, which we believe to be abstract, yet yeah, it's still a contingent on our development. But it's what's really happened is we have we have control of that realm in the Enlightenment when atheism is on the rise, we're moving away from faith, Nietzsche is proclaiming the death of God, and as the death of God is culturally happening in that socio-cultural sense, we are moving actually into a world of machinization, which we do actually have a fair amount of control over. So all of a sudden, yeah, God is, God is dying in the Nietzschean sense. And also we're moving into a world, we're moving away from the above. And it's not just that we're moving away from the above. Maybe if we did, you know, for instance, if you had the death of God in medieval times and you moved away from the above in medieval times, you're going to be left with a pretty dire, horrible, miserable below. Okay, you know, the above, the below, the, the heavens, the world. You're going to be left, you know, in, in, in the medieval era as an average person, you're going to be left with, you know, that would be an absolutely, without God in that era, absolutely miserable existence. 
Whereas now, you know, we're entering into this this end of the second phase, entry into the third phase, solidification of the Enlightenment values, moving, and you're seeing them. Not only are you seeing them completely solidified as solidified as cultural values. These cultural values have now imbued so much that you enter into the Industrial Revolution and you're seeing the, the, the incredible um, practical symptoms of these values in the machines, in skyscrapers, in new building techniques, in automobiles, in planes. And all of a sudden, well, of course, you're going to start saying, well, yeah, look at the control that we now have over this world and that that itself really emphasizes not only the death of god but actually like you know the feeling of not only is god dead but we look look what we can do and the builders of this this ideology for mumford philosophically were bacon descartes galileo newton and pascal and ultimately they give rise to the removal of quality and an emphasis only on that which can be measured can be weighed um quantified right we see this in rene Guénon as well it's the neutralization of the interior life and the data, right? The epistemology of one's interior life with what, which, which one works with, with an emphasis on externalities only. So it really is neutralizes the interior life because, well, and what the only way, and the way it neutralizes is, is it takes out that private world, cuts off the edges, quantifies it. Now we can understand it. And, the more important thing, I think, is that it neutralizes the data. And I think this is more important for Mumford as well. It neutralizes the epistemology. It neutralizes the way people are qualitatively approaching things. It neutralizes the hermeneutics. Okay? And that's the more important thing. That's the personalization. So then you enter into increased specialization because everything's slowly getting cut off. You enter into increased standardization uh, with a focus on the non-historic, the inorganic, and only that which can be sort of extracted without qualitative error. Okay, so science really is born in this point. Science as we understand it is, is born um, as, as that which only focuses on primary qualities. Okay, so secondary qualities, you know, I guess experiential data, feeling, understanding, cultural understanding, contextual understanding, these are all subjective in relation to this science, this newfound thing in a way, this newborn thing, which is also just somehow floating in from this abstract uh, machine realm. So in renouncing all which is neutralized by science, all which is uncontrollable and internable, man achieves this godhood. And this is how Mumford... Uh, slowly comes to the end of chapter one. He says, you know, the, in a way, he says, the goal of the machine isn't the conquest of nature. It's the resynthesis of nature. Steam replaces horses, etc. Okay. So as faith dwindles, invention accelerates. Okay. The new faith in the machine mind was a faith in itself. Okay. So the foundation is built. The goal isn't to have a conquest of nature because a conquest of nature is still sort of agreeing to the terms of the old world and the one where there wasn't this machine world. So now it's this resynthesis where we're in control. And it's interesting because as the faith dwindled, it either coincides very coincidentally or it's quite likely, as I imagine Mumford is putting forward, but he doesn't really emphasize it either way, with this history 
or philosophy of the history of technology is that as faith dwindled, as the death of God is happening, also invention accelerates. So it's almost as if once the, as the creator dwindles in public consciousness, creation lower C accelerates in public action, right? You need that replacement. And so the new faith uh, was in the machinic mind. It's in speed, it's in acceleration, it's in efficiency, it's in productivity, but it's not in any of them specifically. It's in whatever that peculiar abstract machinization is, which connects them all. And then this moves Mumford into chapter two, Agents of Mechanization. So with this resynthesis of nature, this, you know, we're now in control, but we, you know, we don't want to conquest it. We want to resynthesize it. We, we just want to control it and use it in, the, in, in, in our new newfangled scientific understanding. And what really happens here is man begins to move away from nature because we no longer use natural products to create, but we just use these resynthesized versions. Um, a continual understanding that this machine abstract world is, um, uh, you know, is, is the preferred method. And in this chapter, uh, Agents of Mechanization, there is uh, what you might see at first glance as a peculiar focus on mining. Um, so mining was a peculiar one because it's maybe one of the last to really, in the history of technology, you could say, in the history of machines specifically, mining was one of the last um, forms of work, forms of resource extraction, if you want to put it so plainly, to really have much development, right? You, you, you took, and it, there wasn't, out, outside of maybe stone, up until the, 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 you know, the universal usage of machines, there wasn't, there wasn't all that, you know, no, not, no, nowhere close uh, to today's understanding of how much we need mining and ores and rare minerals and all this, you know, for a long time mining would have been perhaps a few a few certain ores used for very basic uh, basic needs. Certainly not chipboards or cogs, small cogs in a machines or watches. And it mostly would have been stone or coal um, up until you know, sort of the gold rushes and things like this. Um, it was basically reliant on that animistic form that we that I spoke about earlier. It was non-machine. It was human strength. And there was no development in this for a, for a long time. However, because of the peculiar um, realities of mining that you had to be in the dark all the time, um, it actually brought in and brought forth many of the typical things we understand as capitalistic now because of the extraneous sort of strength needs and, and exertion but also because you're in the dark all day there was this clear there was a very defined need so farming would likely even though you still had this clock time farming likely would have still relied just on thousands of years of tradition at this point mining on the other hand of course you're in the dark all day you know it's not it's not this isn't the days of quite literally universal where you might have a glowing clock on every four meters and and bright lights lighting the whole thing up it's been in, you know likely an oil lamp or something along these lines and so 
it the, the, the industry of mining brought forth eight-hour days, guilds, insurance, uh, and all of these things now understood as quite common, maybe not so much guilds, but that we might have some form of guilds. But the eight-hour day, all these capitalistic things were brought forth in turning in turn leading to a, a division of classes and even to actually the notions of strike now you immediately begin to see like the solidification of certain machinic elements as they had to be imbued right and what really spurred a lot of this on was as many things are spurred on in history and I'm sure there is a quote like war, war spurs on the wheel of history. Um, wars began to be fought with artillery, which needed metal, which led to greater mining, which led to developments in mining. But not only did it lead to that, the wars which then needed artillery, unlike previous times, wars were being fought in bigger scales and they were being fought with machines in the sense of artillery once again you can look at artillery as um you know with a sword okay there's a purpose for a sword but it can do more than one thing a cannon can do one thing and in that sense of that specialization and you know you light it and it fires and the human is almost like an instrument for the machine's process um it's a machine now wars wars begin to be fought on a on a larger scale they're also being fought with machines. They're being fought with artillery, which need metal. So this led to the greater mining. But because of the absolute extent of all this, it leads to financing. It leads to really the birth of big money, we could say, and the, the powerhouse of, of uh, America and American or certain, you know, I imagine all, all nations have their families which got in at this point. And Mumford, Mumford even says that war was a broth for finance to thrive in. Okay, and so in a sense, mining was a large part, had a huge part to play in the birth of the the current financial system we now we we, we see now. Not only because of that function in relation to war and the needs for ores, but the value function um, overtook with respect to uh, an understanding of you know all embroiled in one of this sort of machinic capitalistic hodgepodge in the mines which is quite ironic i guess with respect to plato is as we descend into the mind into the mine we get the pure machinic mind in the sense of almost blackness where you can't even see the human anymore you know the human is basically just this working function in a completely standardized day and they are working uh, <laughs> by by finance to create machines to kill other human beings and they are doing so largely in relation no longer into relate in relation to any life values but for completely for certain value functions of the machine themselves so it's with respect to the rarities of minerals ores and especially gold of course and basically the machine becomes permitted to exist where metal metal was the foundation okay so now you have this almost like reciprocal machine turning in on itself and saying well that's where it i'm profitable and that's where machines are going to be profitable so there we need to machine more okay and so this whole thing really the, the, the oddly this is why uh, not mcluhan <laughs> this is why mumford focuses on the 
mining as this peculiar thing which happened with mining as like the practical foundation and solidification of maybe what we would call the capitalistic outlook is really happening there in relation to that machine mind and what happens with this is you know as as this um accessibility and standardization of especially of ores and this is once again why mining is so is so key because you have this accessibility of all these things and so like machines on a micro uh, micro scale like small machines that you can move you begin to see that so Mumford doesn't give too many examples but one he gives is we move from the huntsman to the infantryman and what Mumford then begins to em- emphasize is really well it reveals an alteration in habits relating to quality and quantity. So the huntsman has this quality of knowledge where, you know, I don't know, the, 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 the difference between the huntsman and the marksman is far different in their approach to nature and perhaps the understanding of the animal. People could probably correct me on that one, but the point that Mumford is making is much like the clear virilio point is that when you invent the car you invent the car crash and for Mumford this is actually more it's not necessarily a negative thing but it's more of a functional value-based thing so for Mumford he's basically saying well you invent the gun you now have to we now invent by proxy the new type of armor the new type of walls and um this abstraction of the power of machines and and at this point guns and the machinization gives way to war as abstraction, war as this proliferator of the machine. Um, War instruments and weapons further accelerated the need for ores, for specialization. Okay, so war as this catalyst for the machine because firstly you have then the mining. So on a very um, standardized worker level, you know, the civilians, if you like, the, the, the... that area of things is being standardized by war. But what's also brought about from war is the beginning of what we could say is mass consumerism, right? We need 5,000 helmets and they're all the same. We need 6,000 swords or guns and they're all the same, okay? This militarism leads to mass production uh, of standardization. It's really the birth of standardization uh, for for Mumford. Before this, once again, it's a removal of personalization. Um, alongside this, you also have military drills, precision, the backbones of sort of the uh, the nation state as we understand it now. Um, and of course, Mumford, you know, I, 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 the way I've been speaking about this probably seems like I'm honing it down to the years of gunpowder and guns Mumford certainly isn't saying that and that's why he does those three phases of of history the first phase around a a thousand AD second phase from middle ages through to the industrial revolution and then the third phase is now so you know this this thing is really this whole machinization is moving in the way he's seeing it I mean the machines have been here 3,000 years so but it's just this been an acceleration of these traits Um, and with this there is an increase in monetary economies, of course, with gold, the gold standard and things along these lines. Productivity as like a general idea that people understand. Like, So once you begin to think about well, what happens when you remove the notion of productivity from people, like why do people want to be pro productive in that machinic sense? Okay, What are they 
going towards because once again it's the Alulian point of what what ends might have actually been removed because productivity is a means but it's like okay, what are you mean productive towards and a lot of time it's productivity because people and machines are productivity so once the machine values overtake life values of real productive for productivity's sake um the standardization the notion sort of of a sought after sought after standard of living commences from these like uh, notions of standardization where everybody gets a certain thing and everyone should have a certain thing um, and at this point Mumford says something fairly drastic he says at this point a material life supplants a holy life okay so you now have the standardized life so you should go go for that goods become respectable in themselves means for the sake of means and really what we now see at the end of chapter two uh, agents of mechanization is what we would now understand as a solidification of utilitarianism with uh, almost in bed with the machine and you know utilitarianism is the greatest happiness in relation to the newfound abstract machine mind these just both take over all personalization, all life values, and all uh, every notion of uh, qualitative living moving into uh, a quantified existence. And that's where we're at with the, the first two chapters, two very exciting chapters, a really, uh, a really fun book to read, um, not full of endnotes and footnotes and all that lovely stuff that you find in many academic books. He's a great writer. I highly recommend it, and I'm I'm really looking forward to. Um, so as this is part, this book is part of you know I'm, you know dare I say it, but this book is part of um, the renewal of life series, which then goes on to the culture of cities, which is one of his more well known books. Then the condition of man, and then the conduct of life. Whether or not I tackle all those books, who knows? But um, I'll definitely be tackling this one in full. So. If you've enjoyed this, then yeah, the next one will be free as well. And, uh, you know, if you've really enjoyed it, then, you know, the Patreon link will be in the description below. But other than that, I will see you all in the next one where I will be tackling um, the EO Technic, EO Technic phase, and which is Mumford's extremely well-known uh, idea, and then through to the Paleo Technic phase. Um, yeah. So thanks everyone for listening and um, I'll see you all in the next talk.